Greetings, everyone. Uh, Looking forward to being with you today as we talk about something in our Finishing Well ministry that I'm passionate about. Finishing Well Ministries is focused on helping elders, the elder congregation, older people, retired people, people thinking about retirement. What does God want to do in our lives? And he wants to fulfill his plans for us. I'm passionate about that. And that's what we're trying to do in our ministry. Go to our website, finishingwellministries.org. We have 50 some plus podcasts. Listen to them, uh, interact with us, uh, grow with us. Uh, This is what we're about in these aging years. Now, what I want to talk about today, and, and by the way, Randy Hess is not with us today. In a previous podcast, we talked about tragedy he is going through in his life, and he's just taking a break, and we're praying for him and loving him. And in his place uh, with me today is Seth Muse. Seth and I have been partners in crime, you might say, for a long time. He was my youth pastor when I was a senior pastor. and So many crimes. Yes. (laughs) And he's our engineer uh, on this, and uh, so it's fun to welcome him back. And uh, Seth, welcome. Be a part of this, just like normal. Yeah, glad to do it again. Okay. Now, what I'm passionate about today is the importance of finishing well and crossing the finishing line in a strong way. You know, J.I. Packer in his little book, uh, Finishing Our Course with Joy, he, he simply, I'll summarize it. He says, you know, a, a runner wants to throw himself across the finish line and finish well. That's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be expending ourselves for the last lap of our lives and the last straightaway, exerting everything we have to finish well. And I can't agree with him more. I was a runner in college, uh, high school, you know, how you finish down the home stretch, you know, is critically important and how we finish our lives. So I want to take a quick look at four people in the Old Testament and how they finished. And the And these four men, they waffled a little bit. They may surprise you, but I'll try and summarize them briefly. But I wanted to form a backdrop for how we think about the end of our lives or our days. You know, Uh, where do we get sidetracked? Where do we waffle in what the mission of God is for us? So let me just launch in. The first one I want to talk about is Gideon. You know, he's a famous person in the Bible. He's in the Hall of Faith. In Hebrews 11. Uh, so I'm not being critical of these people. I mean, you know, we're all, we're all flawed, just like Gideon. But I think the Old Testament and all the characters there are there for us to learn. So here's what I want to learn from Gideon. Let me summarize his life. You know, we meet him and God wants to use him as a judge in Israel to deliver uh, Israel from their enemies. And the first thing he says, God, would you give me a sign? Well, his first sign is, well, prepare a goat and, uh, you know, a a dinner, put it on a rock, and the angel comes down and consumes the meal. Then he asks for a second sign. Well, it's the fleece and the dew. I want, will the fleece of wool be dry and the ground wet? And then he reverses that. And then God gives him a test. He says, I want you to go tear down your father's idol and take two bulls along. And in the place of your father's false altar to Baal, build a new altar and give two sacrifices to God. 
That's my test for you. I want to see if you're faithful and if you can step up. And the text says he did it, but he did it at night because he was afraid to do do it during the daytime. So then, you know, he has this great victory of the Midianites and he whittles down what 30,000 to or 22,000 down to 300 men. And that's how they deliver Israel from the Midianites. And they're the sand of the sea. What an incredible story. But then something interesting happens. After that incredible victory over the Midianites, they want to make Gideon king. And here's what Gideon says. Gideon says, I will not be king. But here's what I would welcome. Why don't we take an offering of gold and I will build, I will design an ephod. You know, it's what the high priest wore with the Urim and the Thummim on it, the 12 stones, and the Holy Spirit spoke through that to give people. So Gideon says, I won't be king, but I'm going to build an ephod. I want to create it, design it, wear it, and people can come to me for their for their needs. And I'll be the wisdom giver. I'll be the king, so to speak, although he didn't like the word king. And you know what happened? He designed that ephod and he wore it, and that became an obstacle for him and the people of Israel, because they start worshiping the worshiping the ephod as opposed to God. And the text says it led him astray. One final note, Gideon had 70 sons. In addition to the 70th son, he wanted to have a final son with a concubine in Shechem that he kept over there. What? Well, you know, I, this is another story. And he names that son Abimelech. And do you know what Abimelech means? It means literally, my father is king. Now think about that. Gideon is tempted to be king, even though he says, I won't be your king, but inwardly he really wants to be king. So he created this golden ephod. And then he has a son he names as king. My father is king. And then the tragedy is, you know, Abimelech turns around and kills all 70 sons, his brothers that Gideon had, and he proclaims himself as king. What did he learn from his dad, Seth? Yeah. Um, oh, that was some false humility there, for sure. Um, probably a lot of ego involved. And so I imagine that his son probably saw behind the scenes what he really wanted. And a lot of selfishness there. Oh, 70 sons. That's insane. Because because you know they only counted the boys. There were probably girls too. Yep. So how many kids is that? It's insane. And then he he Abimelech kills all his brothers and proclaims himself as king. Well, he's thinking, well, that's what my dad wanted me to be, right? <laughs> Judges is such a wild book. Uh, <laughs> so wild. It is. Uh, Gideon is is no exception. I I've forgotten about the Afad. It's so interesting the 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 objects that sometimes we create to aid us and point us to worship the Lord correctly, become the object and usurp his position. The, the ephod is, is like the, the brown the, the serpent that Moses raised up in the desert. They started to worship that. They get you know, bit by a snake. They look at the snake, bronze serpent raised up over the tent, and now they're healed. And Jesus even mentions that. He's like, just like the serpent, I'm going to be raised up. And I wonder if we sometimes may even do that with the cross in our churches, you know, and, and, and treat that as more holy than it is. It's a death machine. You know, the fact that it's empty is what's important. 
So um, it's interesting to me then that story that, that with Gideon, I forgot about the ephod and how they'd made that from gold and these ornate things and just, wow, what a, what a, what a loss of, of, of mission and focus for that guy. Boy, really powerful, isn't it? I mean, what, what lessons do I take from Gideon in terms of at every opportunity, you know, I need to make a choice to fulfill God's plan in my life for me, for others around me. And I need to stay focused on that because I can easily get distracted and then all kinds of chaos breaks loose or could. Let's go to the second one. And the, the, these elements are all similar in these four characters. Uh, the second one is Eli. We meet him in First Samuel. You know, we met him when Hannah came and prayed and uh, and then she had her son, Samuel, who became the great prophet. But Eli was the priest there. And here, here's the story. We, we, we get immersed into it real quick. The writer tells us that his sons were wicked. They were priests. They were at the tent there at Shiloh, and they were wicked. And the text says Eli did not rebuke his own sons. Uh, and you remember when little Samuel was had these dreams, he, one of the dreams God told him was that he was going to judge Eli. And very clearly in the text, God says, Eli, I'm going to punish you because you did not rebuke your own sons when they were sinning as priests. They were doing all kinds of crazy things uh, with eating, with women, and they were disparaging the role of the priesthood. And Eli was hesitant to confront his sons. And God says, because you're not bold enough to confront your sons, your priesthood is going to end. And you remember his two sons were killed. And when he got the news, he fell over and he died. They all died in the same day. But part of it was because he did not speak truth to his adult kids and leverage his own weight and authority to deal with them accordingly. I mean, it's tragic. You want to say, well, I'm not in control of my sons. I mean, they, they age and they have their own responsibilities and they live life and I can't make them do this or that. It's one thing to be passive and not deal with that issue directly. It's another thing to say, God, help me. I want to deal with this issue and I want to speak truth to my sons and I want to trust you to work in their lives. Does that make sense? Right. But he didn't say, because you didn't make your sons do right, I'm going to punish you. He said, because you didn't rebuke them. You know, exactly right. And I mean, that's the distinction is that, you know, you, you say your piece and then it's their call. You know, yeah, they're free to do what they want, but at least Eli did what he was supposed to do. Um, well, he didn't do it strong enough. Well, he that's what I'm saying. If, if he had said something, then yes. he would have done what he's supposed to do. He, he didn't, didn't like what that. they were doing, but God says you didn't deal with it. You didn't rebuke them. Yeah. And, and that's why it's important and in the church, you know, especially, you know, as we, you know, deal with each other in loving, kind ways, we must, we must call that sort of thing out too. You know, we must say, this is not okay. This is something we should not be doing. And we ought to be able to speak that to each other without getting really ruffled. It's part of who we're supposed to be. You know, and here's Eli didn't want to, didn't want to call out the sin that was happening. And, 
You know, and, and that, that's another whole podcast in itself, Seth. It is. Who, as we age, we ought to see the world the way it really is. And aging people ought to be the ones that can speak with authority on the basis of how life has been processed with them, with the Holy Spirit, with mm-hmm. the scripture. And they really see th- through things for the, what they are. And we ought to be speaking that truth to generations following us. You can't shirk that responsibility. You know, it, it does change as they get older. I mean, it does. you know, he, he couldn't stop them. He, maybe he could because he was the priest, you know, or he yes, had some he kind could. of he authority the over them. He could, have. he could have stopped them in that case. But in many cases, you can't. You know, it's like yeah. this. you yeah. got to say your piece and they go make their call, make their decisions. But it's in that case, he could have stopped and he should have. But, yeah. you know, sometimes you don't have the real position authority to change things about people's lives. But again, it's the same way with the gospel. It's not our job to make someone believe. It's our job to share a message. And the next one I want to show is King David. Uh, and again, I, I do this very humbly. What, what do I learn from King David about waffling at the end of life? Well, in, in 2 Samuel 24, he has a desire to number Israel. Now, here's this scene. I think David is aging. He's a military man. Am I still in control? Do I still have an army that I can lead? And so he tells Joab to number Israel. I, I want to find out how many fighters we have. And Joab says to him, you're crazy, David. You know, you're the king. You rule. Everybody would be for you. But David has doubt in his army and in himself. And he wants to say, do I still have it? You might say. And, you know, there's a a parallel text in 1 Chronicles 21 that says that Satan moved David to number Israel. So I'm immediately alerted to the fact that that Satan wants to work in our lives. And I think he was saying to David, you you don't have it anymore, David. You know, and David says, yes, I do. Let me number Israel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happened. And do you know that 73,000 men lost their lives because of David's sin in numbering Israel? Yes, he repented. And he goes to the floor of Aruna and buys it. Remember, he says, I won't sacrifice the Lord. That would cost me nothing. So he worships and the plague is stopped. And so David renews his heart. So then I want to go on to one more thing. In 1 Kings chapter 1, I, we, we meet, I, I just am amazed at this. Um, David did not designate his successor. Now, that's why Solomon was born, wasn't it? Yeah, they fought over it, divided the kingdom over it. But because David did not name his successor, his son, who was born after Absalom, Ahijah, uh, what is it? Adonijah, I think. Adonijah, yeah. Yeah. Adonijah said, dad's not going to do anything. I'm going to proclaim myself as king. And so then Bathsheba and Nathan get together. And they say, God, we got to do something. Solomon's supposed to be king. So they develop a plan of attack on David and say, David, you got to name this. Meanwhile, Adonijah had already proclaimed himself as king, was blowing the horn, and people were jumping ship onto him. And so David is aroused by Nathan and his wife Bathsheba to say, David, you got to do something. So David arises and does it. So, you know, in the end of his life, he does what he's supposed to do. But I ask myself the question, 
why did he fall? Why did he waffle there at the end? Why didn't he declare Solomon as king before his other son, Adonijah, said, I'm going to, dad's not going to do anything. And there's an interesting verse in verse six, in 1 Kings 1, verse six. The text says David never confronted his sons at any time. You know, and I contrast this with Genesis 48 and 49, where Jacob runs through all of his sons and speaks to them very directly in his aging years, in his final year, and says, this is your destiny. This is what's going to happen. Right. And David didn't do that for any reason. But again, he does. But I want to say, as you're coming down the finish line of life, don't stray. Don't waffle. Don't get sidetracked. Be doing as best you can with the power of spirit what God wants you to do. Yeah, I wonder how much he felt like he didn't have the right. Um, you know, after everything that happened with Bathsheba and all of that, and then Solomon being an illegitimate child, you know, there might have been a problem declaring him um, because of his the way he was conceived. You know, in that in that world, but the other two, you know, being power hungry and fighting. You know, that should have been something he stepped in. And sometimes I know this, like, have you seen families that have the brothers that fight about everything and the parents never step in and make them stop? Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you something. My father always told me that, you know, I've, I've carried on to my kids. He's, he always told me, I have one brother. And he always said, uh, your brother is the best friend you'll ever have. And, and he always made, very, made it very, very apparent that we were not allowed to hurt each other, fight with each other. And he always stepped in and said, stop, here's what you're going to do. And it kept us from being at each other on things. And now he is, he is my best friend. He is literally my best friend. And, you know, it was because my dad stepped in and made sure that that happened. And so you have David here, not doing that, not taking responsibility for the relationship that his kids have. And it has put major implications here, putting the whole kingdom in turmoil. And then eventually they kill each other, I think, and or die somehow, and David dies, and then Solomon's king, and then his kids do the same thing. And they even split the and those kids split the kingdom into Judah and Israel. So they divide the whole kingdom. And it started with David. It started with David. You know, God, don't let it start with me. Don't let chaos begin in my life. I mean, the devil is going to try and make it happen, and he did in David's life, he did in Eli's, he did in Gideon. But we want to be strong until the end, fulfilling God's plan for our lives. I have to go one more. The Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. Let me tell you, just the foibles, the waffling, the drifting that happens. So we discover in 2 Kings, that's where the story is, 32, God says to Hezekiah, and I don't know the background. I don't, the, the, he doesn't give the reason for this. He says to Hezekiah, set your house in order for you're going to die. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we knew what our death date was, you know, and we could get our house in order. That's what we need to do. And we're all on a timeline finishing our lives. So let's see it and set our house in order and do what we need to do. So here's what happened. Hezekiah is mortified. I mean, I just that that's not a play of words. I mean, he's mortified that he's going to die. So he begs God and says, give me more time. And you know what God does? God gives him 15 years. And he affirms it with a miracle, with the shadow on the uh, the stairway. And uh, so Hezekiah is giving 15 years. But what does he do? 
he begins to invite all the foreigners from Babylon to come and see his house and how great it is. And the prophet Isaiah says, goes to him and says, Hezekiah, what are you doing? Why are you bragging about all of this stuff that God has given you before the enemies out of Babylon? And then Isaiah pronounces a judgment on him. He says, Hezekiah, because you were proud in your own heart, God is going to rip this kingdom out of you and your sons are going to be carried off to Babylon. And the text specifically says he had he had a prideful heart. He repents of that pride, but the die is cast. Babylon comes in and the prophet Isaiah says, you know, you're going to be okay, but your sons are going to go off to Babylon. And Hezekiah makes a strange comment. He's he's happy that he's going to be okay, but he shows no remorse for his sons and his family being carried off to Babylon. So, you know, here's Hezekiah. He's he does a lot of good things and God blesses him, but he exalts himself and he's very prideful even in having his life extended by 15 years. So you say if if God said to me, "How you're going to die? You're going to live uh and I say, "Well, God, give me 15 more years." What would I do with every one of those 15 years? I would want to present them to God as faithfully as I could and not take any ownership or prideful response. Well, look at me. God's given me an extra 15 years and he's really blessed my life. And God judges him accordingly. And I want to say, you know, what are we up to in our final years? What are we up to at the end of our life? Are we as zealous for the glory of Christ, exalting him? humbling ourselves before him and finishing our lives well as much as at any point in our lives. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, the whole time you're, you're talking about Hezekiah, I can't help but think of you know the joke we used to play on kids when we'd ask them to look something up in the book of Hezekiah <laughs> and they, it's not there. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, that's a, he was the last King of Judah, right? Was he the last King of Judah in that line? Or I think it's somebody else. Uh, yes, he was, because Judah was carried off into captivity. His right. sons were all carried off. Right. Babylon finally yeah. beats the southern kingdom, and yes. he's the final king. Right. Yep. So, um, yeah. So, tragic ending there. You know, with your last 15 years, you ended up with that. You know, so um, not a great use. I, I love the— I, I, I love that story of him like bringing the other people from Babylon in to look at all his great stuff. And it was like, I don't love it, you know, but it's just ironic that that's the people that he basically gave, he basically gave them a tour. An inside track. An on inside how to, look. And here's how to, here's how to defeat me. Here's all the stuff you need to see. And then they came in and, uh, and defeated him. Like, that's so is dumb. that crazy or what? Seth? what? That's what pride does. It just makes you. You stop thinking and you just do stupid things just to feel good in that moment. It's crazy. It, it's crazy. Uh, I, that story is so tragic to me, uh, especially about his sons and him not caring. It's like, that's so, at what point, what level of pride do you have to have uh, and self-centeredness and narcissism do you have to have before you get to the point where your sons are carried off? And you're like, oh, at least it wasn't me. By the way, I hope this is great food for your thinking. Go back and read these passages, and they're, they're incredibly insightful. I had a conversation with a friend of mine in another state yesterday 
And we were talking about uh, how we deal with what's next in our life. And he used the illustration of, well, God puts dominoes in front of us and we need to push them and he knows what's going to happen. I mean, you have these dominoes lined up and you push the first one and they all start falling, you know, and intricate designs that people make, et cetera. It's fascinating. So I got to thinking, what is it that God wants me to do in this season of my life? Well, do I know it? It's my task. I need to push that domino and keep watching God work because he will. So pride gets us off center. It gets us off our our, our even keel. And it create, the devil creates a lot of havoc. So I want to say it's just a reminder that we need to finish well in the last season of our life, the last year, the last five years, the last 10 years, the last you know retirement years. What is it that God wants us to be about in these years? Like Robert Browning says, grow old along with me. The best is yet to be the last of life for which the first was made. Our times are in his hands who say, the whole I've planned. Youth shows but half. Trust God. See all, nor be afraid. And we want to keep making choices like that right up to the very end. So help us, God. Absolutely. And it's encouraging to think about that for you know the years to come for me as well as I prepare. Like, I don't really have to wait to be in my 70s or 80s to you know no. really be make those decisions. Like, what if the next 15 years are my last 15 years? You know, what am I going to do with that? It's good insight. You know, just the, just plan for that. You know, I, I read the New Testament and see Paul. Paul is like, hey, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. You know, it's like he's a, any moment. So let's do what we're supposed to do now. You know, let's let's live for him now. Let's, you know, yeah. I'm, it's urgent, you know, and it's this, that whole thinking is, you know, when you get, when your perspective goes off of that, I think you start to get lazy and that's where pride starts to creep in. Uh, well, I agree with you. So I've, I'd say like, continue to live this moment. Like you, you have a limited number of them left and what are you going to do with it? Cause you do, you, you don't have any you've got left. Good so. stuff, Seth. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being a part of this with me today, Seth. And thanks for being a part of me as our listeners out there. Uh, focused on finishing well for the glory of Christ in our lives every day, every year. It doesn't matter. You're right, Seth. doesn't matter what year you are in life. doesn't matter uh, what the circumstances are. They may be challenging in every way, but we need to keep fulfilling God's plan in our aging years and live each one of them for the glory of Christ and finish well. May God help us to live those these days, these years, wherever we are that way for him and his glory. Thanks. Thanks, Seth. And God bless you. Have a great day.